to Decoding the Gurus, a podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try to work out what they're talking about. I'm Matthew Brown, Australian extraordinaire, high-level skier, all of that. The guy over there is Christopher Kavanagh, dashingly handsome, Northern Irish, very young, smart brain on him. No, no, it's me. I had you all fooled, but it's me, Chris, doing the intro because Matthew is back from his world travels, back from the DTG company retreat in Japan, where we met up, as people heard, and he's managed to survive the trip, but not entirely. You're not operating at 100%. Is that fair to say, Professor Brown? That is fair to say. G'day, Chris. Not a bad intro. I have some notes I'll share with you later. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, it was a great holiday. Great to see you. Great to go skiing. Great to show off skiing. Mm -hmm. Be a big hit with your son, teaching him how to ski. Become an idol (laughs) for my son. Yeah. (laughs) That poor kid not having someone to look up to no. on the slopes. No one to mentor him. No, no father figure. Hey, I went down a red thing <laughs> at the end, Matt. A red thing. A red slope, you? you know? Good job. My wife wouldn't do that. But no, as so many people do, I picked up a little bit of a sickness, a bit of the plague, mm. the COVID plague on the way home. And it's not too bad. Bit of coughing, all that stuff. But I'm get, I'm on the mend. Point of order. Mm. Point of order. It's probably COVID. We don't have a diagnostic test to prove that. You know, I'm rigorous, yeah. Matt. I'm, I'm here fact-checking. Yeah. But the symptomology... The epidemiology yeah. from cases that we've studied. I've located case zero there. I've, I've got a, I know a guy, the child of my friends who did get diagnosed with it. And he was the one, he infected us all. That's hearsay and rumor. Fortunately, you're vaccinated. <laughs> Many times. We're not anti-vaccine here. <laughs> Famously a non-anti-vaccine uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, so it was all right. The only bit that I really didn't like was getting on the plane as I was inching my way back towards economy through the first class cabin, which is always a humiliating experience at the best of times and there was a a young guy sitting there in first class like 25 years old that was his first crime being much younger than me and enjoying his first class seat but the second thing that really got me down was that he had a great big fat copy of jordan peterson's 12 rules for life sitting there on his thing which i noticed yeah that would grind the gears i hope at the least that you audibly tutted (laughs) the way back shake your head say mate you should check out (laughs) i wanted to budge him but i couldn't that stands the reason. One of my more communisty opinions, Chris, is I think we should ban first class oh. and business class or any classes on aeroplanes. We should just have the one class because those different classes just make the other people feel bad. And I think we should give everyone a little bit more room. Yes, plane flights would be a little bit more expensive. We'll all travel a little bit less. They should make it so you just can't buy a more expensive seat. Everyone gets the same. And that way there's no envy. There's no injustice. And no one has to get punched in first class. Yeah, that's a socialist take to start the podcast. But maybe I can sign off on this until I'm wealthy enough to travel in first class. And then I'll I'll rescind my endorsement of that. But I will say, whenever anybody is traveling first class and complaining about service in any way, I find it infuriating. Mm. Yes, there's little things that annoy you when traveling, but you know, Mm. you should have compassion for the rest (laughs) of us who suffer those indignities alongside the broader indignity of economic class (laughs) in general. So just be careful what you're complaining about. Have you ever flown first class or business class? No, I don't think so. I have been in slightly better seats in like a domestic flight that, (laughs) that you had to pay slightly extra for, but it wasn't like an extra 
location mm. or anything. So yeah. I, I don't think that counts. No, that doesn't. It's like the upgraded seats on like Ryanair. <laughs> that like like Economy Plus or something. That does not. Yeah. Uh, that does not count. No, I, I've never flown anything other than Economy either. But that's what you get for having a family in this day and age, Chris. And being academics. Being an academics. If I was swanning around free man about town without responsibilities, maybe things would be different. Would you fly first class? No, I don't think I would. I think I'd prefer to suffer and then stay. <laughs> like I, you could take that money and stay in like a first class hotel, <laughs> like a much nicer hotel when you get there for like a week. I know senior academics that only fly like business class and stuff. And uh, I remember because people were talking to me about being able to get all this work done, mm. which I sometimes endeavor to do on planes and, you know, it sort of works a bit, but mm. uh, it's always the issue of, you know, the space, right? And they're like, no, but you could just put it on there. And I'm like, nah, 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 <laughs> that doesn't work. Then I realized, oh, you're always traveling in a, like a, a different world than me. Hey, is that getting paid by the university or do they pay for it themselves? I guess so, but these are like PI. I'm a PI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, hey, I've been a PI on some stuff. What am I talking about? But, well, no, maybe they're at your level, but you're busy. because I'm, I'm at the highest level. There is no level above mine, Chris. Well, the, the reason I ask is it's not possible uh, as far as I know in Australia. Like, it's not allowed. No way. Yeah, yeah. But my academics have their ways. Because that's the thing, like, on most grants, it says you can't reimburse tickets that are, you know, above a certain class or whatever. That's that's normal. No, no, Chris, I'm not, I'm not talking about the grants. I'm talking about the university. Oh. The, the university will not let you. Wow. Like, it doesn't matter. In fact, even at CSIRO, the Australian Government Research Organization, where I also worked, uh, and I think most government places are the same. I remember my my mentor and supervisor, Bill Venables, mm. who was like a world-renowned statistician, also happened to be really very large. He had health problems, right? He had health problems, which actually led to him being an extremely large, heavy guy, not very healthy. He's the kind of person that would die from deep vein thrombosis and stuff on a plane, right? Is he still alive? I hope so. I haven't checked in on him recently. Okay. Well, if you're listening, Bill, (laughs) I hope you're alive. (laughs) Anyway, but they wanted him. He was invited to go on this world tour giving lectures, right, to people about statistics and R and stuff because they really wanted him. You know, he's a smart guy. Yeah, and he had to jump through all of these hoops because like he just physically couldn't do it unless he went first class, right? He would probably die. Um, um, but that was like a big deal for oh, that exception to be made. Yeah. I don't know what. I anyway, don't know what it's different if you're in the C-suite. If you're up there with associate vice chancellors and the those people, they fly first class. I'd say the majority of academics don't, but I just know a lot who seem to be very comfortable in business and maybe higher. And that might be the kind of academics I'm dealing with, man. <laughs> the fat cats of the academic world. But, but yeah, I, I mean, so I don't see those spoils so that's it but yeah so that this has been your advertisement for why don't we lift everyone's boat why don't we make all the seats a little bit nicer for everyone can take some of the niceness out of the first class (laughs) and spread it around economy it would be like spreading a little bit of butter over a lot of bread but even so we'd all be you know incrementally better off we'd all have to pay a bit more well that's okay millionaires just don't need a bit more (laughs) if we (laughs) we should do the online leftist thing if we just take Bill Gates's money, we'll be able to pay for first class seats for everybody for a hundred years. That's it. I don't to- get why it doesn't work, Matt. So <laughs> you know, this is why people come to this podcast for economic analysis. So apart from setting the economic system and plane travel systems to right, we are here for a purpose, Matt. Oh, and, and by the way, should you want more? 
of our unstructured waffling and particular discussions about the experience in Japan at the Ryokan, more so than you got. There is a bunch of videos and audio stuff on the Patreon. There's a long extended discussion on plagiarism, academic plagiarism, if you want to hear us discuss that with a, a glass of whiskey or two. So just mentioning, should that be something people are interested in? But that's all Patreon waffle. What we're here for today, Matt, we're not doing the Sean Carroll decoding, which is the next decoding we have planned, a treat for you, a reward for all the terrible people that we cover. Instead, you know, to gently bring you back into the fold and give you a chance to build up your decoding muscles, you know, to let your lungs recover. We're doing one of those short, focused decodings on a specific, really a tweet, actually, that went viral. So a little bit different, but it touches on a bunch of topics that we're interested in. Okay. The clip, Matt, why don't I play it for you and then I'll explain yeah. the context. Is that the right way to do it? Could be. Okay, I'll play it first so that I don't give you any preconceptions. Many, maybe most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around it may be a very nice story, it may be a very attractive story, we want to believe it, but it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside, you find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. They too are, are, are just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it, you can touch it, you can even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories, very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. So that was Yuval Noah Harari, somebody that actually we are planning to cover in the future, a Israeli historian, philosopher, author, wrote a book, Sapiens and Homo Deus. And there he is giving a TEDx talk, I believe in 2014, TEDx Jaffa. It's an old video. And the specific clip that I played to you went viral on Twitter. Various people shared it around. One of them, someone called Scarlett Johnson, a political scientist, grassroots activist, daughter of a Marine Corps vet and blah, 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 right? Said in response to this video, in a tweet that has 3.1 million views, if you believe this, what we just heard, is there any horror you cannot justify? And this was retweeted wildly with yeah. uh, a lot of people outraged. Yes. So what did you think about, were you similarly outraged? <laughs> well, that's how it came across my desk, <laughs> shall we say, as well, which was that, yeah, it was getting retweeted. There was an outrage farming going on. Uh, initially, pretty much the religious right, I think, in the United States, who like to find things to be outraged about, even if it's a, a relatively tepid 10-year-old TEDx snippet. Because, you know, this goes to the their 
idea of atheistic socialists who believe in nothing, nihilistic point of view where, you know, unless you actually have faith in the reality of the eternal nature of God, the United States and the flag and all that stuff, then, you know, you'll just be, you know, sniffing your own farts <laughs> and wallowing in your own crapulence as socialists are wont to do. So that was the original outrage thing. But um, it was interesting to see academic philosophers get in on the act as well, hey? Oh, we'll get to them. <laughs> we'll get to them. But before we get off the religious right, I do want to say that I think part of the reason that Harari triggered them is that at the start, he says human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a nice story, maybe a very attractive story. We want to believe it, but it's just a story. So I think that is the bit that set him up for angering religious people because they don't like it when you present their stories as, you know, comparative to fiction, right? Yeah. That is not good. Now, I would say when I heard this, the general takeaway I got from it is he's wanting to emphasize that humans have the capacity for symbolic culture and that we invent ideas like nations and democracy and human rights and languages and so on, and that these are very important and that this distinguishes humans from other animals in, in very important respects. So if we care about those things, we have to take consideration that they aren't like the others. They're reliant on humans coming up to some sort of shared agreement about their importance. Now, that felt obvious to me, especially because so many cultural evolution theorists have emphasized this point about the ultra-sociality of humans, right? Like, why are humans able to cooperate in such large numbers beyond, like, genetic kin? Lots of explanations, but a lot of them revolve around having symbolic culture and cumulative cultural capacities. Mm. So to me, this is nothing new. And it was very clear that he is not saying that these things are not important. Yeah. And the fact that they are symbolic means that we shouldn't invest our passions in defending them or that kind of thing. Well, you would say that because you're a godless materialist reductionist, Chris. And I would too. You know, the other thing too is, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Yuval Harari and I'm not a fan of TEDx Talkie. Yeah. And, and this was a perfect example of that where you want to make a point. His point is, hey, ideas are important, man. Let's yep. talk about the importance of ideas, but they're not tangibly real. It's a pretty basic, trite point. He was dressing it up in some flowery language rather than describing it in terms of social constructivism or in terms of symbolic ideas or transmissible culture and stuff like that. He was talking about as stories that Fiction we- and stories. Fictional yeah. stories that, that we made up and told ourselves, you know, to sex up his talk a little bit. And then, of course, th that sexing up, ironically, is the thing that triggers the little outrage cycle we saw. Yeah, although also part of the outrage cycle here is that Harari is in the pantheon of right-wing villains, right? Infowars often references him. He's like, if Klaus Schwab is the like evil deity at the top, yeah. Harari is somewhere down in the, you know, the demigod status. Like he's a neoliberal mm. Jewish person. Jewish. That's yeah. So, <laughs> so already he's not doing well. And he's, it's like futurist in certain respects, right? So his villain status already makes him like a suitable, you know, it's very easy yeah. to whip up anger at him. And the fact that he appeared to be disparaging religion helps. And just to highlight, Matt, Paul Vanderclay, a religious person on Twitter who I've interacted with before, he was pointing out this 
video and promoting a response to it from some religious talk show kind of thing looks like a religious talk show some guy called glenn scrivener and he was saying that their response is pure jonathan pajot and and jordan peterson so let me play the response that they had to this clip why do you think this went viral on twitter i've never seen that clip and it's extraordinary to me that when he says oh mount like i can see a mountain yeah. and i'm like well you don't actually what you see is a conglomeration of rocks and things like that but yeah. he like will adopt a standpoint and see these things and yes. go that's a mountain. How do you know yeah. it's not a hill? That's right. How do you know right. it's not a hill? And why is it? When does? Because if he just sees a few rocks, yeah. would he go? It's a mountain. Yes. No, he wouldn't. It has to be, and he arbitrarily selects a certain point at which, yep. or he might say, social convention does that, and yep. and and, yep. and says this is a mountain, and go now that's a mountain. Yes. That's fact. Yes. But then if he sees on a conglomeration of human beings, and either, and so there's a point at which people go, oh no, that's the United States, and he goes. Oh, no, you see, I can't buy into that. I'm having a conglomeration of rocks, but not a conglomeration of yeah, human yeah, beings. Yeah, yeah. You're like, dude, your metaphysical trousers are down. We can see how you're being thick. I yeah. sort of feel embarrassed yeah, yeah, yeah. for him, really. Yeah. This kind of pseudo-philosophical wordplay is so annoying, isn't it? Because it sounds smart, superficial. The sense makers love this. This is what they love to do. Anytime that somebody suggest that something is objectively exists or whatever they're like ah yeah. you know how can you say that egregores are any less real than a sun say because a sun is just a concept it's just an idea that we've applied to a bunch of hydrogen and helium that happens to be in the same place you know these are just concepts chris yeah so, you know egregores are just as real as stars there's plenty of legitimate arguments that you can make to somebody being too glib about the way concepts work or whatever but like the central thing he's saying he would agree if they wanted to emphasize this point that you know what we deem mountains and what is a hill it's actually like a social convention which you know there are there are fuzzy bind like harari would be down with all that. Yeah, of course. But he's not talking about that. He's not making that distinction. <laughs> it's still, that's right. That's right. That's not his point. As we've said before, it's not a very interesting point. It's probably a, a boring TEDx talk that he gave, right? I, I don't know. But he's just saying that there are tangible material things and there are things that are sort of cultural ideas and things like that that sort of live in our heads and that you cannot point to any place in the physical world where they actually exist. Yeah, and just to make this point clear, he wasn't in the law larger talk arguing that because human rights derive from like symbolic culture or whatever that they're not important or that all these concepts they're just you know compared to the objective reality they're so fluffy and, and nonsense like this is from later in the talk i went and listened to the talk so here's him talking about you know what makes humans special you will never catch a chimpanzee standing in front of an audience of 200 other chimps and giving a talk about bananas or about humans or something only humans do such things. It should also be said, however, that chimps not only don't give talks to strangers, they don't also don't have prisons. They don't have concentration camps. They don't have slaughterhouses. They don't have arms factories. Cooperation is not always nice. Often when we think about cooperation, we think about Sesame Streets and, and teaching children to cooperate together, but all the terrible things that humans have been doing, still are doing in the world, they too are the outcome of this ability to cooperate flexibly in very, very large numbers. 
Now suppose I've managed to convince you that the secret of success of our species is this ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. The next question that immediately arises in the mind of an inquisitive person is how exactly humans do it. What gives us this ability to do something no other animal can do? And the answer is our imagination. Humans cooperate flexibly in large numbers because humans can create imagined realities together. Yeah, he's saying this intangible stuff, this conceptual stuff, this cultural stuff is terribly, terribly important. Two-edged sword can be used for great things or terrible things. Yeah. Even if you're religious, Harari is atheist or whatever, right? But you can actually take from this that he's saying human cultural products or human imagined realities that we share, which maybe, you know, you can say, you know, God helped to create those in man through the the kind of instincts that he developed. This should be freaking gravy for the sense makers. Yeah. This is what they love, right? Talking about symbolism and the importance of imagined realities. So he actually was making a point which they would be on board with, but because they were so triggered by the, you know, the reference to mm. fiction in, in regards to religion. It's taken one that he's arguing human rights aren't important and, you know, that they're a fiction in, in terms of like, you know, being insubstantial. Yeah, he's not saying human rights are not important. No. No. Or two, that religion is a, you know, a terrible thing that we should transcend. And he, again, isn't saying that either. <laughs> he might think that. But that's not what he's arguing at all. He's arguing that all these imagined realities like states, like democracy, like religion are hugely important for human societies, which obviously they are. So it should be a mundane point, right? The the kind of point which is like, what is money? You know, the money that you have in your pocket, it's just paper and metal. And the only thing that gives it value is people are willing to trade it and treat it like it has yeah. inherent value. Yeah. And that's just a shared convention. What if society broke down a madman? And you're like, mm. yes, that actually is an interesting thing to realize. But most people <laughs> realize that in their <laughs> teens. <laughs> yeah. And you're right, though, that there's something special and triggering about him saying that natural and all human rights are imaginary, right? Or are invented. But people wouldn't have a problem if you said that people invented democracy, right? Or money. Or money. Or freaking anything, <laughs> right? But we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, didn't we and in finding out that there is a stream of respectable thought not amongst the religious right but amongst a much broader stream of philosophers and other people that human rights and natural rights are not a human invention like democracy or money but actually exist independently of humans oh, they're, they're mind independent i think is the jargon that they want to use for it but like so yeah so you mentioned academic philosophers matt and in a rare clasping across the boundaries right that meme you had the religious right and the the sense speakers and the philosophers actually think they're fairly they're not a huge distance apart i described them a little bit like pokemon you know the the base pokemon and the evolved version with philosophers being the evolved version of sense speakers now i don't know who that's more insulting for but i do think there's at least connections there but the bit that is not always so in step was that academic philosophers were likewise very annoyed by this clip from Harari. And what triggered them was not the reference to religion as being a fiction. They didn't really care about that point. What they got triggered by, and I will say it's triggered, is because he referenced 
human rights. And apparently there is a developed debate within philosophical circles about the nature of rights and whether they are like what I would say a kind of naturalistic science based perspective would be is that human symbolic culture relies on humans existing. So the concept of rights has to develop from human symbolic culture. So you, you go back to the dinosaurs, you, you don't have any concept of rights, but there are a class of philosophers, including ones that classify themselves as naturalists, who think that those concepts existed without humans and that yeah. there's very complications about it. But that's why. So how do you use the other example he wouldn't have triggered the reaction, but they were very annoyed because they said, what a simplistic way to, you know, treat a very complex topic about rights. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this, Chris, is it puts you and me, um, reductionist materialists that we are, in the same camp as Michel Foucault and other people because they would describe this kind of rights as being totally socially constructed, right? Which is yeah, really saying so. the same thing. <laughs> just, just trust me on that one. At least I, I okay. think I'm probably right. Whereas it's more the liberal, I guess, philosophers who would talk about natural rights and inalienable sorts of things. And they sometimes would say that they derive from the divine, right? God mm -hmm. or a godlike essence in people or something. Or if you get a bit more sophisticated and less religious, you might say that they arise kind of by our inherent human qualities, right? Mm. Like humans, from that argument, you'd say that natural rights or human rights arise because humans as being conscious, intelligent creatures or whatever, just, just naturally want to be free, that kind of thing, right? Not be oppressed. Yes, and uh, I was helpfully sent a link to, you know, the Stanford philosophy page, which has a long entry about these kind of debates, but I couldn't help but notice that whenever it's referencing it, a lot of the points of the people who are, who want to argue that they are not mind dependent or whatever, it will reference the source can be supernatural or an unspecified, but kind of mystic -y. I'm sorry, it is like, it's kind of like a realm of concepts or something. Yeah. The ether or whatever. Yeah, like platonic eternal forms. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll be triggering the philosophers, but I don't mind. I'm sorry. Because the point I want to emphasize with this was, you know, take whatever philosophy you want, like theistic philosopher, if you so believe that's your bag. But the point for me is that both of those groups, the academic philosophers and the religious reactionaries on Twitter, they both were just focusing on this little thing, you know, this part of yeah, the speech. That's right. We have to remind people, these were just examples, right? He was not making a point about human rights or natural rights or about religion. He was making a point about transmissible culture and the importance of, of cooperation and ideas in, in, in fueling organized uh, um, um, endeavors. Yes, and almost universally, I will say from interacting with some philosophers, I cannot speak for all of them, and a few, just looking to the religious right, they seem to get that wrong. Like they didn't infer that the broader point of the talk is actually a promotion of the importance of imagined realities, right, for humans. So like they, they kind of assumed that he was- He was sort of dissing. Yeah. yeah. He was implying that either God or human rights aren't important. Yeah, which he wasn't. And it was, it was very <laughs> obvious to me. So, you know- You know, work on your theory of mind, guys. Work on your theory <laughs> of mind. Figure out what the person's trying to communicate, what their motivations are, rather than zeroing in on the syntax. That would be my- Yeah, advice. and I, I, I do think 
it's occasionally worth looking into the context of why Harari is a particularly triggering individual for the reactionary right or that kind of thing. Like just a, a five minute Google search will reveal to you his position in, you know, conspiracy theorist lore and whatnot, which seems like you might consider it when addressing this kind of topic. But I don't know. Philosophers are very good at focusing on individual words or in this way, they share a lot with sense makers that that's what they like to do. Making simple things extremely complicated you mean (laughs) (laughs) but don't say that but but i I will say another like an external example is um a guy alex o'connor who's doing a bunch of interviews recently with various figures peter hitchens stormed out of an interview with him and he's he's kind of like an atheist philosopher he recently did an episode with pajot and they enjoyed a productive symbolic laden philosopher slash sense maker crossover with nary a word about, you know, the lurid conspiracism and religious apologetic style reasoning that, that Peugeot applies. And both seem very happy that they were able to, you know, achieve such an important reaching across dialogue. And I, I thought really the same is something to be impressed by because the fact that philosophers and sense makers can talk together and enjoy this kind of thing, I could have told you that yeah. from my experience with both of them. So I'm sorry, I'm not besmirching all philosophers. I know there are plenty of philosophers who are, you know, they also find issue with conspiracy theorists and sense makers and, and this kind of thing. So I'm not casting aspersions at the entire philosophy field. And I know that very many smart people have spent many decades talking about rights and how they can be independent from mind. Yep. And a lot of religious scholars have spent a long time arguing how many angels dance on the head of a pin. You know, I don't know why you would use that (laughs) analogy. That's not fair. (laughs) No, we're coming back with a bang. Maybe the normal people won't do the when I say normal, I mean like reasonable (laughs) people won't understand why philosophers are going to be slightly mad at us. But well, you know, philosophers being mad at you, you have to be doing something right to get some set of philosophers mad at you. The philosophers would agree. They're all mad with each other. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. But that clip, just to be clear again, like Harari is, I think both of us agree. It's a fairly mundane observation just about humans having symbolic culture and it it being important, right? Our cumulative culture in some respects, the thing which distinguishes us from almost all other animals, the capacity to communicate, create cumulative culture and share intentionality in in a kind of bonding and um, whatnot way. But uh, that to me seems unobjectionable, but but not particularly mind-blowing. No. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll be keen to um, look at Harari. Maybe it was a bit unfair to him. Maybe I think he's all right when we cover him uh, properly. I started reading Sapiens and I, I got bored and stopped, so I, I can't really speak to it. I believe part of the issue is, you know, he, he does long, big picture history. And so if you know specifics of any of the topics he covers, it's really oversimplifying claims and complexities. And, yeah. you know, if you do big history for all of human civilization and history, you're really going to annoy a large, diverse set of people. So, yeah. Stephen Pinker, for instance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's in the same category. But Chris, speaking of culture and monkeys mm. and, and people, when we were in Japan, my wife, I didn't actually go to see them, but she took photos for me. She went to see the uh, snow monkeys. Nihonzaru. Nihonzaru. 
Macaques. Macaques, are they? Yeah, I think they're Japanese macaques. Anyway. Very, very famous. People have probably seen the beautiful photos of the, the snow monkeys sitting in the steaming pond or hot spring bath. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what they're called. Hot spring. Hot spring. <laughs> hot spring. Hot spring. You know, but what is also pretty well known, but my wife saw it for herself, is that uh, not all the monkeys are allowed into the spring. Mm-hmm. There's the alpha, high-status family, males and females, and, and their children, maybe cousins. I don't know how far it extends. But, you know, the in-group, the aristocrats, they're in there having a lovely bath. And meanwhile, all of the other members of the macaque troop are sitting there literally <laughs> clutching their shoulders, like huddled together for warmth in the snow because they're not allowed to get into the spring, even though there's room for everyone. There's room in the spring for everyone but they're not allowed in because of monkey society. Does that remind you of another species that behaves like this, Chris? I like how you've tied this into your opening segment with the discussion of first-class plane travel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, obviously you meant to do it. (laughs) This whole discussion (laughs) leading to that. That's right, I'm the monkey shivering in the snow at the back (laughs) of the plane. (laughs) They should let me in first class. This is right. Jordan Peterson, Hooperman, and Joe Rogan are the monkeys luxuriating in the hot spring and telling everyone else the benefits of cold water plunges <laughs> yeah. while they retreat to their mansion so yes i agree the proletariat macaques need to <laughs> need to seize back the means of water heating production and yeah. uh, enjoy the sports <laughs> but matt you answer one question to me if you cut open the macaque where do you see that status mm. you cut open a macaque there's no status there wait, wait a second this is blowing my mind like uh, <laughs> are you telling me that monkeys have some kind of symbolic system of reasoning as well have you thought yeah, this for yeah 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 well i mean this would i'm sure this is in your wheelhouse right because this is what comparative anthropology mm-hmm. and uh i i love that stuff because well, i mean one like monkeys are bastards right they're bastards i've, I've met monkeys yeah, all yeah. over the world and they've never been anything other than horrible but they're very close Clever. They're a lot like us. And in one spot, they figured out that they could steal tourist stuff and that they'd race up a tree, you know, the sunglasses. This is pretty famous. Yeah. Most people know this, right? And they'll hold on to your sunglasses until you chuck them a banana. Then they'll drop the sunglasses. So it's basically extortion, right? <laughs> yeah. They've invented extortion. <laughs> They've invented extortion. That's a good example, Matt, because the limitation there for the monkeys and why we don't have the capitalist class <laughs> developing amongst them is that typically, with some limited examples, they're not great at passing down that kind of knowledge across generations. Neither there are a couple of notable exceptions, but it's the cumulative culture and the capacity for passing down information and cultural learning, which is the hallmark. But actually, they do. There's a good example. You know, we're primates, we're cousins, we've got close common ancestors, and like us, and like many other species too, they are concerned about prestige and hierarchy or, or status. Yep, social status. Hierarchies. So they are modeling a component of relations in their mental wheel space. But yet, yeah. They didn't invent rights no. or democracy. So what's the difference? Yeah. Or socialism. That's right. They need to invent socialism. But, you know, but this is, is good. I think it sort of speaks to Paris point because I generally, even though it's bland, I generally agree with it. Like monkeys, societies suck and they're pretty similar to basic state of nature type human psychology. Small scale human societies before we developed yeah, that's larger right. communities and, and shared cultures. Yeah. We were just another primate on the block. Yeah. For a long 
time. Yeah. It's basically a very hierarchical, totally status-driven, oppressive kind of society. Oh, my, careful. The anthropologists, I can feel them cringing mm-hmm. within because- what, do, what did I get wrong? Just plenty of examples. Are you going to mention Bonobos or something? No, 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 <laughs> I'm not. Those little fruitcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Those sexy little bastards. We talked about it with Manvir. Oh, you weren't here. <laughs> you were drunk at the time. But there's plenty of societies. You have small-scale societies or hunter-gatherer yeah. style. They're not always nasty. No, no, no. They, they don't always form in the hierarchies. Mm. In fact, there's plenty of examples where there are anti hierarchy, social organization. So it, it isn't necessarily a fundamental feature for society to function that you would have to have this rigid social hierarchy system. This is something that various anthropologists and other social science people sure. want to emphasize that, you know, like Jordan Peterson looking at nature and say the status hierarchies of lobsters equate to that it's such a primal component that you simply can't understand human society without understanding that that is a core component that can never be removed. And the notion that prestige biases and that there are status and stuff, I think he's actually right there, but he's wrong on the notion that it has to form in the kind of- uh, A rigid hierarchy type thing. Yeah, like yeah. status and social cachet, reputation is always important, but it doesn't necessarily ossify into a hierarchy hierarchy type thing. Exactly by the point that Harari is making, we can create cultural systems that yeah. are much more egalitarian yep. and whatnot. That's the the difference. That's the point I was trying to make, just the relatively weak version of that, which is that we can make things more sophisticated, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but it does at least expand the universe of possibilities, including this great state of Queensland, this great country of Australia where we live in the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> well, that took a, a surprisingly <laughs> parochial <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, I just demonstrating anthropologists getting triggered over the mention of natural hierarchies and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it's all complicated, Matt. We can all agree. But well, I'm with Harari. Natural doesn't mean good. And this is where Jordan Peterson's wrong, that natural doesn't mean inevitable either, right? Natural no. usually not very good and certainly not inevitable. And, you know, you've got to be aware of it. Common misreading of old Dawkins, right? That because he said selfish genes that he was saying we should be selfish and humans are selfish. And no, that was actually the opposite. We're not tailored mm-hmm. to the gene drives because of our cultural values. So a similar point, commonly misinterpreted and equally Somebody that annoys philosophers for some valid reasons as well. So so there we go, Matt. Look, we tied it all up. You see how many little threads we wove and we pulled it all together. We're getting back into the swing of this. We'll we'll be decoding gurus in a full-length episode in no time. Yep. I'm feeling healthier just having spoken to you. Off the air, you mentioned that, you know, it's difficult if you laugh because, you know, it it can induce coughing. So you have to be careful. And so for that reason, I was 20 to 30% less funny than usual. Listeners might have have noticed that. that. So if there's any of that, Mm. it was purely to protect Matt's lungs. That's why (laughs) I was doing any jokes that didn't land, any, you know, it was all in service of protecting the most important member of the Guru's pod team. Wow. The most vulnerable, you could say. Wow. <laughs> this gives us something to look forward to. Excited to see how you're going to perform back when. <laughs> yeah, that's it. it. That doesn't follow, but yeah. So there we go, Matt. A little, the daily delivery on Twitter and elsewhere of outrage from various different factions and stupid clips surfacing years and years after <laughs> they, they were made. This is what 
social media was made for. Yep. To make people outraged about out of context clips. Yep. And lucky for us that they are, because it gives it's grist to our mill, Chris, gives us a position to give a reasonable, considered, and fundamentally correct take on events. But there's one message that I want to leave people with, okay. which is monkeys are bastards. Never trust a monkey. Or a philosopher. <laughs> That's a good message to end on. Some of my best friends are philosophers. I'll just <laughs> <laughs> Some of them, I, I assume, are good people. Now, we'll leave with that and we'll return soon enough with full-length decodings, other things that you can expect. And thank you all. Have a wondrous day out there. Don't worry about hierarchies and, you know, money. What is it anyway? It doesn't mean anything. It's just like a made-up concept. Yeah, like, you know, imagine, Chris, there's no countries. Mm. Imagine. And no religion, too. It's easy if you try. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> is. Yeah. 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 Food for thought. Adios. Adios, amigos. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye.